friends, this is Morgan Snyder, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. For the 50th Become Good Soil podcast episode, I introduced the idea of the opportunity to submit questions for the hope of a little bit more of a dialogue to have question response. And it was pretty amazing. I didn't know if any questions would come in or if so, how many. And now uh, we're months away from that. And Today, I printed out a fresh list of the questions, and there were 94 responses of just brilliant questions, and some of those having multiple questions from a man. It really strengthened my heart to see the questions that are coming from this fellowship of like-hearted around the globe. So I took a stab at an earlier podcast to record some of those questions and realized it would take a lot more space to unpack. And... I sense that it would be more of an ongoing uh, conversation and expression of the Become Good Soil podcast as we walk more deeply into the idea of becoming the kind of man in whom God can gladly entrust the care of his kingdom. And so I wanted to tackle some more questions today. Uh, This was a real joy to read these, and I'll take it from the top and just go through and give some thoughts in response. A question that came in from Ian out there was, what risks do you think are most appropriate to take in becoming a full man of Christ? It's a great question. And it's interesting, as I ponder that, I think I have two kind of first responses. And the first is, and I'll repeat the question, what risks do you think are most appropriate to take in becoming a full man of Christ? I think what I would say first is all of them. And secondly, is the one that's in front of you. Here's what I mean by that. It has much more to do at first, I believe, in the process of maturation and becoming whole and holy with the fundamental reality of risk-taking and how that shapes the masculine soul, then it has to do with the specificity of it. And one of the kind of dynamics that's important to remember is it always feels like the risk that we are facing is enormous. And yet, the risk that we're facing now is small in comparison to that which God wants to entrust to our care one day. And when you're young and you're thinking about risks of trying out for a team or risks of asking a girl on a date, then you grow up a little bit and you think of the risks of choosing a university or choosing not to go to college or choosing to move, they all feel really big. And then you get married and choosing to engage a spouse in the shared union, and then the risk to have children. The masculine journey has the narrative of ever-increasing risk. And here's the challenge. If we don't participate in taking the risk that's in front of us today, we will lack the practice and training for the greater risk that's coming. And the implication is we simply won't have the courage or capacity to take it when it matters even more. And so 
risk-taking is really a practice. It's a maturation process. And so it has as much to do, I believe, with risk-taking itself than the specifics of the risk that we're taking. And so what I would say is all of them, because they're all part of the practice of growing in risk-taking. And to pigeonhole it and say, maybe it's risks in finances, maybe it's risks in relationship. It all depends. It's all on a walk with God and it becomes very personal. But I would say the risk in front of you is often the narrow door, the narrow gate that God is opening to keep you engaged on the frontier of your masculine soul. So on paper, it may not be in the central lane of your story, but in fact, it may be a huge deal for your initiation. It may be that the stakes are high for you financially and they may be high for you with your kids or with your vocation. But today there's a conversation that is um, pregnant with your wife. There's a conversation that's asking to be had. There is an invitation to pause and sit with your wife and say, honey, I would just love to honor you by coming to the center of how you're feeling. Can, could you risk putting some words to how you're doing? Or could you put, could you risk putting words to what my impact has been on you on a heart level. Now that risk may have little to do with the big picture of what you see externally of what's going on, but it has everything to do with the initiation and the maturing of your soul. And so to the question of risk, I believe it's always a practice. I would say, take the risk in front of you because it's the path to become the kind of person that can handle greater and greater risk. And you'll see the fruit and you'll see God prevail and you'll see the false self be dismantled and your true strength be restored. And then it becomes the lens, a lens by which you can see all of the arenas of your life. Another question, this question comes from Matt. Morgan, last year I had the privilege of attending the Wild at Heart Australia boot camp. Let me say it was utterly life-changing. My life has been turned upside down in a very good way. I came away so hungry. I think I have devoured almost all of the Become Good Soil and the Ransom Heart podcasts and almost all of John's books. Here's my question. It's been born out of attending the boot camp and listening to the podcasts on the topic of mentors and sages. My story is that I'm in my late 30s. I've got three young kids, an amazing wife, and I struggle with being passive and unintentional. How do you find older men to help share on this walk? Especially when you find that most of the older men around you, for example, in my church and my Christian circle, seem to be in the same boat as me. I think it's something that's quite prevalent in our Australian culture. What does typical mentoring relationship look like? I hope these questions make sense and I'm happy to expand more. 
Yes, this question of mentoring is huge. It comes up again and again and again. And let me give a few thoughts just by way of kind of big picture ideas as you as we approach the category, the ongoing category of mentoring and the cultivation of mentors. Let me first say this is a very vulnerable dimension of our masculine journey. Because in this question on mentoring, there are desires that we desperately want spoken to, and yet we really risk being disappointed and we really risk believing that it's available. I think what I would encourage a man to to consider is that first and foremost, it is God who is fathering us. I love what Peterson says in his introduction to the book of Hebrews. He says, religion is the well-intentioned efforts we make to quote, get it all together for God. And it can very well get in the way of what God is doing for us. The main and central action is everywhere and always what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do for us. And Jesus is the revelation of that action. Our main and central task is to live in response. Friends, what I wanna say is the ache of mentoring must, among other things, surface the belief that God is at work, that he is the initiator, and that our main and central task is to respond to his fathering, respond to his mentoring. And here's where that helps me is I'm always looking for pieces of God, for parts of his heart to come through a man and a piece of a man's story. I spent a lot of time archery hunting and it's a lot of time behind glass through binoculars and spotting scopes looking for animals. And what I've learned is you rarely, if ever see a whole animal, you learn to train yourself to look for an ear to look for a bit of a rump patch, to look for a horizontal line in a vertical forest, to look for a flicker of movement. And over time, you begin to train yourself to identify, oh, this is the animal that I'm looking for. I see in part, but I can qualify. This is what I'm after. I think the same thing would be true when I approach mentoring. Every man is under renovation. You're right, Matt, that Our mentors are in the same boat as us. They're struggling with the same issues, perhaps in different stages of life, perhaps in different stages of maturity. But God is always at work. And it begins with this posture of God is my mentor, God is my father, and he desires to entrust portions and parts of his heart to come through other people because we are relational at our core. And so with that, I can come with confidence of looking for the Father to work through men. And yet, I come carefully to not be disappointed by putting too much of what I need on any man. I think it's one of the greatest dangers is to attach to another man to be our Father. And almost every story I've ever heard in time it results in deep disappointment. Men are failed, men are disappointed, they don't get what they need. And so what I would suggest is as you pray that God would father you through mentors, you don't look for some global solution or one man to fill it all, but for you look for pieces. And so it may be the guy 
in the plumbing aisle at Ace Hardware or Home Depot that can help you with that need that you have that's just a little piece that is a manifestation of the Father heart of God, that's some portion. It may be that there's a guy that you notice is really um, capable in his finances. And his marriage may be a disaster, or he may have bounced all around in um, different relationships with men, but his finances, he has a strong hold on. I think what I'd say is if you need mentoring in your finances, you can approach that guy um, and explore it and ask and be curious and see if there's a portion that's to come through him. But at the same time, you hold it loosely, you bring it before God, and you allow time to be the great tester. It's sort of a checks and balances, understanding that no one has everything, but everyone is entrusted with something. I think another piece that's very important, and this was shared to me by a mentor, is that he was an older man and he said, if you want to be fathered, find an older man and go and serve him. And in the process of serving him, you will find that fathering comes to you as a byproduct. It's interesting when I heard that, and that was recently, just in the last couple of years, I looked over the last 10 to 15 years where I've sought out mentors. And I realized how deeply true that's been, that I've received the most fathering by older men in the context that I've chose to serve and sacrifice on their behalf. So often we come first with our need, but it's a broken world and everyone's struggling with something. There are things that older men need from younger men that you can be a great benefit to them in that regard. It's been said that the student needs the teacher and the teacher needs the student, that the son needs the father just as the father needs the son. I think what I would say to this question of how do you find good mentoring? How have I found them over time? In all humility, part of me wants to say, I've made them. I've made them. In other words, much of the mentoring that I've absorbed, much of the wisdom I've found from elders, much of the ancient path that I've recovered from whole and holier men that have gone before me. It's something that I've helped to unearth. It's something I've worked with them to surface that they didn't even know they had. I mean, examples like my interview with Chuck Bolton in that three-part podcast series. I've had a huge response of men that have been deeply impacted by that. And that wasn't Chuck coming to me to say, hey, I've got some wisdom I wanna offer. But I happened to be around Chuck years ago in some unique circumstances. And I became aware this man has some things that I noticed that really are admirable and I would like to learn from. And I chose to pursue him, to ask questions and to get his advice on topics and to ask him how he prays and how he lives and how he walks in his marriage and what he's doing with his son in recovery. And then over years in time, 
we cultivated a friendship where we could care for each other and serve each other and pray for each other. And then we got to the point where I said, hey, Chuck, I'd love to just capture some of your story on a podcast. And I don't know that Chuck had ever done that before. It turned into a four-hour conversation and some gold, um, some of which Chuck didn't even know that he had in him to offer. And so mining the category is really helpful. These men aren't wearing big badges that say, I'm a mentor, ask me questions. They're men in the firefight, just like you. They're men struggling with their own um, challenges on their frontier. They're waiting for a student. They're waiting for a son. And many of them don't even know it. Many of them actually have deep struggles themselves about identity. And it's only in you risking honoring them, serving them, engaging them in their world, that they become the mentor that they truly are. This question reads, after early wins and restoration, as we get into the middle and later parts of the decade, we run into the most deeply entrenched parts of our false self. The false self knows he's losing the war and about to be put to death on a regular daily basis, but then he fights like hell to hang on to those hardest, final parts in us. Love to hear more about dying to the hardest, final places in the false self that, quote, do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do. Yes, yes, this is gold. This is gold. I think what I would suggests is reframing the question of rather than how do we put to death those final parts of the false self? And instead, I would suggest saying it as how do we put to death the next portion of the false self? There's always a deeper piece. And so often it's not until we put one portion of ourselves to death that we can get to the next portion. And the hope is that every time we pass through a death, we gain a greater life. And it's like when Paul says, outwardly we are wasting away, and yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day by day. And so our light and momentary struggles achieve for us an eternal glory that far surpasses it all, right? Something that cannot be taken. And so I think for me, on a global level, as Chuck had shared with me, is have you hit your bottom? I think on some level we're dealing with the false self, there is a certain level of we need to hit our bottom. Until a man hits his bottom, it's gotta get worse before it gets better. And so God can be very patient with our process and we often have to suffer more we often have to experience more loss and more death before we are ready to surrender and put to death the false self to achieve a greater life. And so I do think it's important to say, do I want this to be my bottom or do I wanna go deeper? Um, I hit a bottom of sorts on December 1st of last year and I lost two friends to suicide and it just hit me in a really tough place. I was struggling with this growing anxiety. I felt like I had plateaued in some areas in my soul and just was worn out from the fight. And then I lost these two friends and one of them I had fought for a lot and he just wouldn't respond. 
to God in the pursuit. And it, it, it threw me for a loop. And then I connected with a friend who had actually been diagnosed with a um, disease, an uncurable disease that is fatal in time and is progressive in its negative manifestations in the body. And I said, how are you doing? And my dear friend, I'll call her Katie, said, I'm doing really well. And she had this light in her eyes. And I asked her, I said, how are you doing so well? And she said, well, because of this disease, if I don't live true, if I don't live well in my mind, in my rest, in my play, in my spiritual life, I actually manifest symptoms and the left side of my body starts to go into paralysis. My left foot starts to drag. My face sags. My speech is slurred. But when I'm living well and in God and true to what I know I need, my body responds and I do well. And it was this beautiful moment of I realized, wow, it, is that what it will take? for me to live well, to have the type of illness that my body actually manifests paralysis and a sort of severe mercy from the heart of God so that I can have indicators that are simply undeniable, that I'm not living in Christ. And, and it was a, a wake-up call of sorts where I said, I want this to be my bottom. I want this to be my bottom. And so I'm ready to do radical shifts in my heart, in my life, to pass through this death. In that time, it was this wrestling with this anxiety so that I can have a greater life. And it sent me into a deep exploration over the last nine months to go after learning the false self even more in me, becoming a student of my false self, understanding why I've crafted this very sophisticated person that's simply a means of self-protection and survival and making life work apart from God and avoiding fear and avoiding shame. And so, yes, I've already crucified major parts of my false self only to find that there's even deeper parts he's after. And that's where I was able to come to the place over a month with this epitaph, with this kind of proclamation of this is my false self. This is my best description of that man in me that needs to be put to death. And that's where I came up with the words, he came through proudly and anxiously for many and much at the expense of who and what mattered most. And once I name that, I know that I will find even deeper levels in time. But for now, that's my deepest level. And here's what I'd say to the question is, as we find our bottom and say, we're done with this life and we want more, and as we begin to be a very deliberate student of our false self, I wanna say we also have to be very kind towards the false self. Because if we're very violent against him and very angry at him, and it's almost like a war, um, it becomes almost a civil war in our own soul that can really wear us out. 
in contrast, we have to remember that the false self, uh, much of it is formed in our early childhood for survival. Now, I had a friend who was told at 12 years old when his dad was leaving his family, abandoning the family, his dad turned to him and said, you're the man of the house now. And make no mistake, my friend responded to that. And at 12, he became the man of his house. He became the financial provider. He became the guy that doesn't cause any problems. In a lot of ways, he became the spouse of his mother. It was very violent to his soul, but it was essential in the short term for his own survival. And therefore, we have to be very compassionate. The false self begins with being in a fallen world where we seem to have no other alternative but survival. And then it's in time that we come and we are adopted as sons and daughters, as the scriptures say, that we're invited back to God to say, son, daughter, there's another way. There's another way. You don't have to make life work on your own. And so I share that to explain as we get into the deeper levels of the false self, it's often kindness towards him and compassion that will allow us to relinquish his hold. Even to the point there have been some prayers where I've had to say, I understand your service, false self. I understand that the only way you knew to survive was to come through. And I understand that that served us for a time in a way until I found that that wasn't the life that I wanted or I found that it actually wasn't building true relationship. I thought that it was building what I wanted, but what I wanted was actually in my false self, something like success and something like achievement. And I've now matured beyond that point and I no longer want that life. I want peace, I want joy, I want life, I want true relationship. And so thank you for your service, I release you false self. I bless the true man and I release the false self and I simply don't welcome you here. You are not welcome to rule. Jesus has jurisdiction over my soul, over my relationships. I share that by way of example as there, there's a kinder approach we must consider as we get to the deeper layers of the false self. And so in closing, I'd say it's not the final piece of the false self. It's simply just the next. What is the next? But every piece gives ever increasing life. And I can tell you with joy and with a smile on my face that I'm actually doing better now than I've ever been doing in my life, in my inner being. I just came out of a Wild Heart boot camp, and we've probably done somewhere between 50 and 60 boot camps over the last 20 years. And this past boot camp was my best experience of a boot camp in my body, in my soul, in my mind, in the relationships with our team that I've ever had. And I know that is a lot of the fruit of the deeper and deepest excavation I've yet to do of the false self in this past nine months. And so I wanna say there's much hope, there's much fruit, it's much, it's very worth the work. Go slow and be kind. And over time, the ultimate fruit 
is we become the kind of person like Paul who's able to say one day, perhaps decades from now, that we've learned a secret. Paul says that I'm sure you find me happier than you think I should be in these circumstances. But friends, let me let you in on a secret that I've learned, a secret that I've practiced. Paul says, I know being hungry and I know being well-fed. I know riches and I know poverty. I know having much and I know having little. I've experienced all those conditions, all those circumstances. And what I can tell you with confidence and with joy in my heart from a profoundly deep place of wholeheartedness and union with my Father is that the secret is I can do all things through this union with the one who makes me who I am. In other words, I have passed through an initiation. I've passed through countless deaths only to achieve a greater life. And Paul's saying, I've become the kind of person that I found nothing that matters to me can be taken from me. That what can a man do? He can't have my soul. I'm free. Even in chains, I'm free. Even in death, I experience the greatest reward, which is life. Right? The translation, now that I've gone through my initiation, I am ready for anything, anywhere. It's the translation of Richard Rohr of Philippians 4, 12 and 13. He's saying that I have become so crucified to the false and so alive to the true. No, I still have a thorn in my side. No, it's not over, but I have joy that cannot be stolen. I have happiness that transcends circumstances, and my soul is well with little and with much, in hunger and well-fed. That is the death of the false self and the restoration of the true, and that's what's available to us in ever-increasing measure. Next question came in from Andrew. He says, I'm nearly 50 and have tracked with the Become Good Soil message for a while. My question is, what to do when you find yourself asking, is it too late to start excavating? Here's what I wanna say to that is, it's never too late. It's never too late. And yet, I want to explore what might be operating behind that question. I wonder if there might be an agreement and a whisper, an insinuation that says something like, it's too late, right? In other words, the question's already been answered somehow by the whispering of the enemy to cause you or many of us or all of us in some way to make an agreement, it's too late. It's too late for excavation or it's too late to heal my marriage or it's too late to have back what I've lost with my kids or what I've lost in my body. It's very important to be current with agreements that we are making with lies agreements to compromise, agreements to block the work and life of God 
on our behalf. And so even before we address when is it too late, what is on time, I want to take the moment to remind us that on a regular basis, it is very important to explore our own soul and just the the landscape of it and ask where have we made agreements with lies? And sometimes we're in it. It's like trying to find visibility when you're in the midst of a storm. Sometimes it's cloudy and we can't get clarity. And that's why the prayer that helps me so much to reorient and to find the narrow road is rather than chasing all the agreements I've made, I simply pause and I say, I agree with God. In other words, I give my soul over to union with God afresh. And in the prayer that I pray, I agree with you, God, with who you are. I agree with what you're doing and I agree with how you're doing it. And I would suggest it's probably the second most important prayer that I pray. Uh, God, I agree with you. I give agreement to you and with you in my soul, in my body, in my mind, in my heart, in my will, in my imagination. I agree with who you are. And what it's professing is I don't fully know who you are, but that doesn't change who you are. And so I agree with you as you are. I agree with what you're doing, God. I don't know fully what you're doing. I don't have full visibility to it or understanding, but I agree with it, God. And I agree with how you're doing it. I agree with the pace. I agree with the portion. And friends, there's something in coming to agreement with God that it will push out the fog. And then it may show that there is a particular agreement that you have made that has been blocking the work of God, that's arresting your maturity and your initiation. And it may be something along the lines of what we're talking about here is feeling like it's too late to start excavating. And so then you break that agreement specifically. But I wanna let you in on a secret on Become Good Soil. It was birthed out of an invitation for men roughly in their 30s to begin this excavation process. The intention was to have a peer group of men that were like-hearted, that were rather close to a decade of young kids, young marriages, young career. And the reason being, first and foremost, is that's where I was in my masculine journey. That's what was current. Secondly, I think that that's a very vital opportunity to access the masculine soul. In other words, there's a lot of disruption in our culture for men in their late 20s and 30s when they're stepping into full-blown adulthood externally. What it surfaces is the uninitiated places within them. And so many men jump into that and they start arranging for life. And statistics show that the happiest decade for most people, and this isn't Christians, this isn't any particular demographic, but for most people, the happiest decade is the 40s. And what's fascinating is it has a lot to do with the false self, because if you think about it, the 40s is this kind of perfect place on the apex of the bell curve where we've bumped through life and managed to make life work for us. We've arranged for a small story that somehow we can kind of maximize security and comfort. And we still have enough of our health, enough of our ability to get a lot done. 
And for the most part, in their 40s, most men have made a few resources, have made a little money, have made a little name for themselves, and have gotten something going. And so the irony is 40s is the most, quote, happiness for most men because they have kind of manufactured a life and have, have tweaked and polished and uh, designed, architected the false self. Um, and it's working well, good enough. But in fact, we lose the access for God. We grow hard, we grow defensible, we grow um, less capable of being dynamic, of being students, of being curious, of asking questions. And so when I began, the on-ramp for a decade of excavation was in the 30s. But what I wanna suggest are two things that I think are pretty revolutionary. And the first is a decade of excavation, a decade of taking the lower seat at the table, of choosing character over kingdom, of, of surrendering shortcuts, of focusing on character building over building our own kingdom. That is not an option if we want to continue in maturing as men, if we want to become whole and holy. We simply cannot become mature, wholehearted adults on the level of our soul if we bypass that decade. And so what I mean by that is if it hasn't taken place in the 30s, then you have to tackle it in the 40s. And if it hasn't taken place in the 40s, you have to tackle it in the 50s. And haven't taken place in the 60s, you have to tackle it in the 70s. And friends, this is very hopeful because this is the nature of masculine initiation. And so it's not that it's too late. As we age, we have more regrets, we have more grief, we are far more set in our ways and far, far less dynamic. And yet there is no other path to becoming whole and holy than engaging in the process of excavation and recovering the ancient path that promises rest for our soul. And so I wanna share that with hopefulness and with excitement that it is never too late and there's always an on-ramp and God will make it on time for you. And so it will have its unique expression for you where you are in your life stage, in your geography, in your story. Last piece I wanna offer on this is as I have grown through um, this process of excavation and initiation and becoming, I've also had a son who's maturing in his path and his initiation and his development. And what I've found fascinating is I've had the privilege of mentoring my son and participating in God's initiation of my son. So much of what I have sought to experience myself and also invite other men to experience through the idea of becoming good soil was actually intended to happen in our process of moving from boyhood to manhood. That actually our first pass at all this isn't in our 30s or even in our 20s, but it was, much of it was meant to happen from age 10-ish 
to age 20-ish. And in this decade of, of maturing from boyhood to manhood. And what I realize is the fundamental questions in a boy's soul at that age are very similar, are rooted in the same DNA as the questions of a man in his 30s. And what I find as I watch Joshua and we wrestle with these fundamental questions of his initiation into manhood of who is God and who am I and what is the story in which I find myself and what is my frontier as a man? As Joshua wrestles through these questions, as I engage in his initiation and his vision quest, I find how many similarities it has um, with what God has brought me into in the decade of becoming good soil. And so what I wanna suggest is it is the path of masculine initiation and masculine maturing into wholeheartedness and union with God it is never too late. We must be very aware of agreements. And now having said that, we must ask what is appropriate for our age and our stage. When a man goes through his initiation in a healthy, in a guided manner in his boyhood into manhood, he is in a different place to ask different questions more mature questions and in his initiation through his 20s in the season of exploration and discovery. And then he's even in a healthier place to ask even deeper questions of maturing and uniting his heart with God in his 30s and beyond. And so it's never too late. And there's always a door being made open to recover the narrow path that leads to life. I think I'll pause here and just pray. That's a lot to cover. And those are some deep subjects. And the Holy Spirit might have just one of those topics for you for now. And so I encourage you to tuck this podcast away and consider going back to it at some other time. But in the meantime, on this, Holy Spirit, we ask for your counsel. You are our teacher. You are our counselor, and you are our guide. And Father, you are the one who provides everything we need exactly when we need it. And Jesus, we confess that you are power, that your all-surpassing power exceeds every power in this world that the scripture says your name is above every other name and you hold claims to name us over every title and every name that can be given both in this world and the world to come. Jesus, the scriptures say that there is a great power at work for those of us who choose to believe and agree with it and partner with your power and to participate with your work. And so Jesus, in all these categories, we come to you. Father, we come trusting in your deep and personal provision. Holy Spirit, we come entrusting your divine guidance and your shepherding. And we do 
agree with you, God, in the fullness of who you are, that more of us would belong to more of you. And that would be the greatest prayer that I can think of praying, that we ought to consider praying with regularity, that more parts of me would be given over, God, to more parts of you, that I would find growing union, union with you in my mind, in my will, in my body, in my imagination, union with you in my soul, in the landscape, in the terrain of my inner life, of my deep heart as a man. I choose union with you, God. I agree with you, God. I agree with who you are. I agree with what you're doing, and I agree with how you are doing it. God, I want to invite you to take me deeper, deeper as a student, to be aware of the structure of the false self. Would you shepherd me in putting to death the false self in its self-saving, its self-sufficiency, its self-identifying? God, you give me my name. As Lewis said, God, it's not who we want to be, but it's who we were made to be since before the fabric of the world that we must recover. God, I want to recover what you meant when you meant me. And so Holy Spirit, shine your light. What is in the way? Where do I need to exercise courage? Jesus, I am so aware that risk-taking is always fraught with complications and with fear of failure. And I know from Adam, on the fall of man, that every one of us shares in common the profound fear of failure and the attachment to success as some evaluator. And God, I crucify my commitment to success. I crucify my fierce reliance on outcomes to buoy my emotional life, to buoy my sense of self-worth. And I ask in its place that you would root my soul afresh in finding my worth in you. I am your son. I am your student. I am your warrior. I am becoming a king in your kingdom. Father, this is holy ground. And so I invite you to come and care for my heart. God, that I would crucify the false that I would take up my true life, that you would apprentice me in healthy risk-taking. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would shine your light. What is the risk today in which you're asking me to engage? Holy Spirit, shine your light. Give me a picture. Give me a person or an action or a sentence where is it that you would invite me to risk? God, we trust you. We unite our heart with your heart. God, we choose to listen to your voice. And we ask you, Father us afresh today. 
Father us afresh, dead to sin and alive to you, God. We breathe in your breath. Just pause in this moment before we race off to the next thing, the next podcast, the next commitment. Friends, I invite you, just pause with me and take in a few breaths together. Just breathe in and breathe out. Breathe in the life of God and we breathe out everything we're carrying. Breathe in God's strength. We breathe out everywhere we feel weak. We breathe in confidence. We breathe out self-reliance. We breathe in union. We breathe out the self-life. Friends, breathe deep today. You are loved. You're chosen. You're on time. God knows your story. You're being pursued. The main and central action is everywhere and always what God has done, as Peterson said, what God has done, what God is doing, and what he will do for us. Jesus is the revelation of that action, and our main and central task is to live in response to God. Friends, I bless you to live in response to God. May you be curious and attentive to what he's up to in your story. Thanks for joining me.